Hi, everyone, and welcome to Total Celebrity Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTutor, NeilHaley.com, and all the exciting places. And I cannot believe I'm, I have this man on the line. Uh, multiple awards, fa- some of my favorite movies. He's done so many things. I have the legendary Mel Brooks on the line. Mel, how are you, and thanks for calling. I'm here on the line with you to talk about my son, Nicholas Brooks's movie, Sam, S-A-M, Sam. He made a movie that he wrote that is uh, different, crazy, and and thoroughly enjoyable, and it's called Sam. And uh, I don't know how you get to see it, but I'm sure you'll find it. It's uh, probably going to be on Hulu one of these days very soon. And that's interesting you talk about that, you being involved with your son in this production. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, he just issued a warning to me right from the beginning. Hands off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing and directing it. I'm the Brooks that's writing and directing it, not you, Dad. So, uh, but... Uh, when it was when it was finished, I said, Do you, "Would you mind if I t- told people, you know, what I thought of it?" He said, "Not at all." So I've uh, I've done a few interviews with various networks and stuff about about the movie, and uh, I'm really proud of him. I'm proud of him. I'm proud of his work, and uh, I've seen the movie about three, four times now. And uh, strangely enough. Some movies you see once and you don't have to see them again for the rest of your life. Right. That's, that, you know, a lot of movies like that. And some movies uh, you like to see again, you know. And uh, I'm going to see it a couple more times because I really enjoy seeing it. And uh, uh, there's a couple of movies that never go away. Yes. Never go away, like uh, Wizard of Oz. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Blazing Saddles. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I, tell me. Yeah. What, what's up? What do you want to know? No, I want to know. I, I'm glad you brought that up because Nicholas is such a great guy. I mean, a fantastic guy. And he told me when you were doing all these films, like History of the World Part Two. Uh, blazing saddles, space balls. Nicholas was helping you in certain ways, and that's an interesting part of the backstory that he was involved in some part portions yeah, well, of what well, you're especially doing, especially on space balls. Because you know, a mind a mind that's thirty years younger than mine, twenty or thirty years younger than mine, actually about twenty, is valuable because he's um, he's seen he's seen the world and he's seen movies especially from from a whole different youngest perspective you right. know and i my movies are all john ford and frank capra and you know and and his movies are spielberg and so it's different it's all different right his his perspective on uh on my movies was very valuable Absolutely. When you talk about Spaceballs now, so that's you thought when you first came up with this idea, a lot, a little, a lot different in a lot of ways because it's kind of spoofing another movie, right? By doing Spaceballs. That's what I really do for a living. I, I, 
parody is, is really what I I do. Blazing Saddles is a parody of every Western ever made. And, um, Spaceballs is a, is a parody of Star Trek and Star Wars and whatever sci- big sci-fi movies. And I, 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 I like... I like, you know, making fun of them, but you can't make fun of anything. Like, even even Blazing Saddles, you can't make fun of anything unless you love it. Right. And you do it, you do it with a, a certain kind, you do it with a certain kind of reverence. You know, I, uh, when I did Spaceballs, I mean, uh, I sent the script to, to Lucas, and Lucas said, I really... I was, Lucas said, I was having a morning cup of coffee when I began to read it, and I, I spluttered and spilled the coffee all over your script. <laughs> he said it was really funny. He said, There's, oh, I have only one prohibition. I said, what's that? What's that, George Lucas? What's your prohibition? He said, your, your figures are really look like mine, distorted versions of my, of my characters, Please, no action figures sold in stores. I said, you got it. So that was the deal. No, no action figures. <laughs> so was, was he laughing about it? Was he laughing about it with you, Mel, when you gave he him loved the answer? It. He loved it. He thought it was really funny. He said when, uh, he said when Dark Helmet plays with the action figures, <laughs> he said he was, he was on the floor. <laughs> I can imagine that. That's 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 so funny for sure. When I talk, think about you know the blazing saddles. I just think of just how you really uh, introduced characters in certain ways with com- comedy that uh, took chances, even at that time, Mel. Right. Well, I mean, it was um, between me and you. There were big internal fights about whether or not. To release the picture, one the the uh, the guy that was in charge of domestic distribution, Leo Greenspan. Leo said, "I think we would soil the name of Warner Brothers if we released this movie. Oh my. It is it is a disgusting, dirty, <laughs> terrible movie, and it insults the West." So, <laughs> Thank God there was a guy called John Kelly, C-A-L-L-E-Y. And John Kelly said, um, I'm going to try it in three cities. Anyway, he said, let's try it in, in uh, Chicago and L.A. and New York. And, uh, and they did, and it was, it was okay. But then in the summer, the, the exhibitors said, we, we don't like uh, Warner Brothers had some big summer movie that didn't make it. And they said, we, we want Blazing Saddles again, if you can give it to us. And uh, so they opened it. And in February, it opened in, in, in three theaters. And then in March, it went to like, oh, I don't know, 150 theaters. And in... Uh, end of June, beginning of July, for the July 4th holiday, it opened in close to 850 theaters. Wow. And it, it became a riotous hit, you know, and uh, I, w- I was able to, uh, you know, relax and and uh, order order more than a cheeseburger for dinner. You know? <laughs> uh, 
and and when we talk about one that I just I love because I I have a degree in history, it's history of the world, part one. I mean, I just just. The, the fact of the matter of how funny, if you're a historian, the different spoof things you did throughout the history showing it, it just it was awesome. And that's, again, a different type of thing, spoofing on now history, right? That was the whole plan. Yeah, I love yeah. you know, just, just, just taking the mickey out of a lot of the you know, historical facts is fun. You know, like I had fun with the Inquisition. And, oh, uh, I love that. I got a lot of letters from a lot of rabbis who said, <laughs> It was in questionable taste, but uh, uh, there were a lot of other people who loved it. So I loved making it, the Inquisition, and and then you know I loved the the Roman Empire. And I'll tell you a very funny thing. I hired there's a guy called John Hurt, and John Hurt is a is really a British actor, and he's a really you know a really terrific actor, and uh, he. Um, I asked him to play Jesus. <laughs> okay. And he played, and, and, you know, because we did the Last Supper. I was a waiter. I came in and I said, uh, is it going to be one check or is it separate checks? Well, how are you guys paying for this? And yeah, they all yelled at me, Judas. Yeah, get, this may be our Last Supper. Stop annoying us. You know? <laughs> and, I, and, and I yelled at him. You know, he really attacked me. And I said, Jesus. And then John Hurt turned around and said, yes. And I said, what? And he said, but he called me. What? No. What? You know, Jesus. Yes. And we kept going back and forth. Like, and uh, it was hard to do the scene because we both broke up a lot, you know. But it was really great fun. And then uh, you know, there was, the French Revolution was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I, I played. I played King Louis like like a like a guy from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who in which I am, you know. It's good to be the king, you know. I love that. I I I, I say certain things like that and, and joking around at ways. I, I love that. I love that quote. It's good to be the king. That just yeah. That just that, yeah, that just, and 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 I'm 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 43, going to be 44 tomorrow, Mel. And oh, great. I, yeah, yeah, great. yeah. So this is yeah. a birthday present in a lot of ways. Talking to you about these uh, different well, you're things. You're about as old as my youngest son, Max Brooks. Do you know what Max has done? I got a lot of talented kids. Yeah, what did Max do? Well, Max wrote a book called The Zombie Survival Guide. Oh, cool. And it never stopped selling. It sold over two million copies. Wow. Then he went on to write uh, a book which became a very big movie called World War Z. Oh. With Brad Pitt. Really? Okay. You know that movie, World War Z? No, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's it's a zombie invasion of, of uh, the United States, and Brad Pitt is wonderful in it, you know. And uh, Paramount is going to do, probably going to do World War Z two, whatever. Oh, wow. So Max busy, and he write, he he wrote the story of the Great Wall, my son Max Brooks, which opened in China, to um, incredible, like a hundred million dollars over over a weekend. You know? Oh wow! You so know. He, uh, yeah. We haven't seen the Great Wall here, but we'll be <laughs> coming here. I guess. <laughs> no, is it time for Mel for you to come out with something else now? Especially with the chaos of our country, is it time for Mel no, Brooks to? Yeah. I, I don't know about a movie, but I'm very busy. I'm going to be taking um, a, a musical that I wrote called Young Frankenstein, 
his name is Frankenstein. He wants nothing to do with the family because he feels they're crazy. Dead is dead. You can't reanimate dead tissue. And that's the story of young Frankenstein. And uh, it's based on a movie with Gene Wilder. Wow. And it's, it's a musical that's going to be opening in London sometime uh, this coming fall. Oh, wow. So you... I'm very busy. I wrote, I wrote the book with Tom Bean, and I wrote the lyrics and the music all by myself, and it's, I think it's pretty good. When you think of your start again, when we talk about the producers, I, after I became a fan of History of the World Part One and uh, Spaceballs, I came back and watched the producers, but again, probably because of this history, liking of the history, it just really, after wa- understanding it more and more, just to, you really spoke to, pl- the, uh, to certain times as well in your, in your writing, didn't you? Yeah, like, you're right. You're absolutely on target. That was, you know, well said. You, you write for certain times, for certain periods, that are perfect for for the piece that you're writing, and that's what you, that's definitely what you did with the producers. And uh, again, just saying, you know, hey, we don't want this to happen again. We're going to talk about this, and we're not going to ignore history. And that's, I think, what you put in all your different things. You look at your whole background, your whole life. You look at Blazing Saddles, Westerns you talked about. You saw the phenomenon of, of Star Trek, Star Wars. You did Spaceballs. Then you even mm-hmm. came out with Men in Tights. I mean, there's just so many different things. What would you say was your greatest, because um, I know we're running out of time, your greatest accomplishment, you would say, in your career? I think breaking so many barriers for Blazing Saddles. It's probably my greatest accomplishment. I mean, there's a lot of walls that I tore down making that movie, saying saying the things I said in Blazing Saddles. So it's uh, it broke down a lot of racial barriers, and and it <clears throat> there was a lot of warmth and 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 you know the the secret is comedy. Yes, if there's something wrong, if there's something really wrong. Either in, in uh, either socially or in government, attack it with comedy. Don't get on a soapbox. If you get on a soapbox and rave and rant, you're not going to accomplish anything. People won't listen to you. But if you make them laugh, it can make them think. If you can make them laugh, you can make yes, them think. Yes, I agree. So laugh, laughter is a very, very important substance in 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 getting your ideas across. And Mickey does that with, with this. Uh, Mickey Brooks does it brilliantly in Sam in this, in this gender-bending, insane comedy. It's beautiful. You, uh, yes. I won't give away the ending, but when I read the script, I said, you sure you want to go with this ending? And he said, yes, I am, Dad. And then when he when he made the movie and I saw the movie I said oh, 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 oh you're absolutely right you're absolutely right that is the ending you're very brave and I'm very proud of you yeah. so, and I'm very I'm very proud of his accomplishment Sam is Sam is a, is, is kind of a I don't know is a is a kind of different and very uh, creative creative movie and you know absolutely 
proud of his work. All right, we can. And ch- anyway, you know, it's, it's a pleasure Absolute. to talk to you. This has been great. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. MelBrooks.com to find out more information, especially about Young Fran- Frankenstein, a Mel Brooks book, the story of the making of the film. And then also, I cannot wait to find out more about uh, the musical. So, uh, yeah, you love the book. You know, if you call Shelby and give her, send her your address. I will FedEx a, a, a young Frankenstein book, the story of how he made that movie and all the, the private and wonderful pictures of Gene Wilder and, and Madeline Kahn and Terry. Oh, Dwight. thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Mel. Just give her your address, Neil, and we'll, 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 I promise we'll send a book out to you this week. All right. Thank you, Mel. I will definitely do that. Thanks for taking the time. MelBrooks.com, the legendary Mel Brooks. Thanks for taking the time. You're welcome to come back anytime. I know how busy you are. And thanks for taking okay, the time. Okay, no, no, this has been a pleasure. I'll call you again and, and, and get, give you updates on my crazy life. Well, I'd love that, Mel. Thanks. I appreciate it, man. Take care. Oh. Okay, you bet. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. See you, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Celebrity Slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Welcome to Living a Legacy, and I'm excited to welcome the program, the host, Eric Couch. Eric, what's going on? Hey, man. Welcome to 2021, buddy. We're excited. Yeah, always great guests we have, but this one, again, is a super guy, right? He's Superman. So today, we have Dean Kane, actor, producer, former professional football player we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff dean welcome to the show buddy appreciate it, eric thanks neil i'm happy to be here and i like the i like the intro so i'll take it yeah <laughs> eric's, eric's great with the intros and let's just eric go right to the questions for sure dean absolutely hey so dean now you know i i've heard about you but i didn't know that you had played uh you were like the super athlete set a record at princeton in football and uh, that uh, you went on to be pulled with the, the Buffalo Bills, right? That's correct. Yes, the, so I, have, I was always a football player. Growing up, I was an athlete. I played every sport under the sun. I was, um, that's sort of how I really you know, pictured myself. Um, I identified as an athlete, first and foremost, and a student. Uh, I was a good student as well. I went to Princeton, so I, I did okay. Um, but I was a top athlete at, at my high school. I was a top athlete at my university. <coughs> Excuse me. I was really blessed and fortunate enough to get a shot to make it to the NFL. 
I lasted a short period of time before I was injured. And that's when it was nice that, uh, that I had that backup, that, that Princeton University degree, um, so I could become an actor. Right. So you could become an actor, Dean. That's, that's funny. <laughs> that's, that, that's, a, that's a good one. But I think that, as we all know, storytelling is such an important thing to have, have that knowledge base, right? Don't you agree, Eric, that you, uh, calling, being, great, being a great character actor takes lots of talent and ability, for sure. So, so how did you transition now? Now, I read some of your backstory about, um, you know, being uh, adopted by, by your uh, father and changed your name to Kane and, and getting into, you know, being an athlete, but living in Malibu. He was a director, right? So I'm guessing somehow that played in, but would love to hear kind of the, like, how do you transition from I'm a football dude to I'm Superman? <laughs> it's a good story, I think. Uh, well, like I said, I'd always been a student and an athlete and, and I'd always been able to do those things very well. Um, and I loved doing those things. And uh, growing up in Malibu, you know, it was, um, <clears throat> it's a very small community. And my parents' best friends were Leo and Eileen Penn, um, the parents of Sean Penn, Chris Penn. Um, and I grew up with Rob Lowe and Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. And my dad directed those guys in movies and things. As an athlete, I, I mean, as a student, as an athlete, I wanted, I couldn't wait to get to college. I knew that playing football um, was the best sport. Although I played several, volleyball, I ran track, I played baseball, I wrestled, I sort of did everything. Um, and so I was like, you know, I want to be able to go to a university, a great school, and I want to play football there. And eventually, I'm sure when I started thinking about, you know, getting into a, a, a job, um, I was, at, I remember being at Princeton, I, maybe it was my sophomore year and everybody was going, doing these internships on wall street. And they were, you know, doing 80 hours a week in a suit and tie and sweaty, hot New York in the summertime. And I was like, that sucks. Then I would go to my dad's set while he was filming young guns and all these kids that I grew up with are riding on horseback, pretending to be cowboys, having a freaking blast telling stories. I was like, wait a minute. Hmm. This one seems a lot more fun. And it's something yeah. that I'm having grown up on sets my whole life. Um, there's something about it. There's something about being able to be there and be a storyteller. And then as I, you know, I was a history major in college. So um, and that's just one big story. Wow. I'm a history major as well, Dean. It's I a got great undergrad in history, great. master's in education. So yeah. Where's, where's a guy in the financial world that did the 80 hours a week and I'll say did. We'll leave it at that, right? You still have um, hair. You still have hair. Not like most of my friends who are in the financial world. I'll tell you that. Well, I said, you know, my dad was bald at thirty, so I'm grateful. I'm, I'm like, look, I got hair. It's real. We can pull on this stuff here. But you're, old, but you're only like twenty-eight, so in two, you got two years left. Who knows what the future is going to bring uh, in my life? But uh, as someone who was a good moral person who just wanted to do good for his fellow human beings, and hopefully. I will attain that uh, position of being able to help a lot of people. I've been able to travel the entire world um, doing charity work in the slums of Africa, uh, in the outskirts of Vietnam, um, to Nicaragua, Australia, New Zealand, all through Europe, Asia. I've been able to go everywhere and touch a lot of lives. And it's pretty amazing to think about. And so if I can inspire people and I'm, and I'm known as somebody who, who used my life and my influence uh, for good to help people, that's a win. That's a wonderful legacy 
um, for me to be to, to have that uh, is incredible. Um, so I try to live my life in a way that, you know, if someone looks at the way I've lived my life and the choices that I've made, that 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 me living my life the way it is 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 living a legacy. You know, I'd like to believe that the things that I'm doing, uh, it, it, that that's a representative um, of of who I am. And whether it's being a law enforcement officer or being a devoted father, I turned down more money uh, to be a father. Like I turned down an entire show um, that would have made me uh, so much money, but I would have had to have been an absentee father um, because I was in a custodial fight oh, with his wow. mother. Um, I ended up with full custody of him um, later on, but uh, I turned down, it would have made me the highest pay paid actor or one of the highest paid actors in television, but I turned it down. When you wanted to be a singer when did that come up that you said i want to be a singer and a performer How well, i knew when i was eight years old oh. what i wanted to do and where i wanted to do it actually um of course i grew up uh, during world war ii earliest memories and Ernest tub and listening to the grand old opry and uh so I just knew, I often tell people it wasn't just to perform on that stage that made its impact on me. I, that sounded like a family, like a close group yeah. of friends that laughed together, sang <laughs> together, had fun, joked with each other. And I wanted that too. I wanted to be a part of that. So I remember I was in a little school program in third grade. I was eight years old and and I heard the little bit of applause and it's like, yeah, <laughs> now I know for sure this is awesome. what I want to do. Yeah, a lot of stars uh, have that vision at a young age, eight years mm -hmm. old, typically. Um, I wanted to ask you, because uh, you come from classic country, right? Mm -hmm. So what's what's your opinion of how country has evolved, you know, from from classic country, which I love to some of the stuff we're hearing today? Well, you know, every decade, every generation brings their own styles, their own message in their songs. And I think that country music, maybe more than any other, has always reflected ordinary life we live. Uh -huh. I know that's the way I've always felt. I'm no Definitely. different than any other American girl. I just sing and write songs for a living. So I think that it's just natural uh, that it changes. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's just not the same. Well, when I got here, it wasn't the same. I mean, <laughs> I remember getting criticism because I had strings on some of my early records uh, instead of fiddle. And with all due respect to Kitty Wells, uh, I didn't want that sound of steel guitar. I wanted Buddy Emmons. So I think every generation brings in their own sound. And if we don't like it, maybe it's not, or maybe we're not in that generation anymore. But yeah. there's some incredible new talent out there. I am blown away by by some of the young female entertainers and the song. Do you have a favorite? Writing. Carly Pierce is very special mm -hmm. to me. Cool. And I've watched her grow and develop her talent since the early days at Dollywood. And we became friends and actually kind of neighbors here. And uh, I've always been impressed by Carly's work ethic from a young age and 
So I like to point her out when I'm talking to people and young people, especially that want to do this, say, don't be taken away by the lights, the costumes and the glamour, because there's a lot of hard work behind yeah. it. A lot of tedious hours and uh, a lot of miles on the road. And it's <laughs> lonesome out there sometimes, too. Let's talk about work ethic. You talked about how you like certain people's work ethic. Would you say, especially making it, you had to work really hard. Eight years old, you figured out this is what I wanted to do. When did that work ethic come up, come into being and see it? How much do you think that was why you became successful as a singer is because of your work ethic? Well, I think that was really hammered into me and my family, which I'm at the time I fussed, of course, about my chores and all. But looking back, I'm so grateful for that. But yes, at eight, wanting to do it, I started radio in Meadville, Pennsylvania when I was 11. And then I started working with the dance band when I was 13. And in my teenage years, uh, it was actually on Sunday nights, I remember we were working like this dinner club, dinner, dance, everything club up in Erie. And like every other kid, I left my homework till Sunday night. So I would get up and sing some songs and then I'd go back in the corner where they had a light set up for me and do homework. And so, yeah, I always multitask. And later when I went to work, I went, in, went to work on a bank when I got out of school, but I was still singing the weekend. So I drug in pretty tired some Monday <laughs> morning, but the work... <laughs> work week went on anyway so yeah i um i'm glad that i had that kind of uh background and um i still work all the time and but, that's and, and there's but i love something. what i do see dave <laughs> isn't there something about work once you have that hard work ethic it doesn't disappear does it dave idle hands are the devil's workshop It'll all come from the Bible Belt. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. My mom quoted that too, and well, in the old saying, you know, find something you love to do. Then right. it's not hard work, and it's yes. a passion, and it's just my joy. It just simply yeah. is. Now, Jeannie, back in the seventies, as you know, uh, that the country show Hee Haw really brought a lot of attention to country music and was the cause of a lot of crossovers. Uh, where were you during Hee Haw and were you pretty supportive of it? I'm sure you were. I was supportive of it and I made several guest appearances on the show. Uh, I thought Hee Haw was good in, in a lot of ways and also I had some problems with it. I had some issues. I wanted to make, I thought that the comedy things some of the comedy came off as comedy but i was also afraid at times you're you're not you're not funny enough this is looking like you're putting people <laughs> down i didn't like that my other problem was it with it i didn't think that it represented women in the way i wanted us represented on a regular basis if you think back right. it was either the character, the toothless uh, hair and curlers yeah. that, that Ronnie Stoneman played, or to the ditzy blonde, the 
big bosoms and her um, short shorts yeah. honey honeys or whatever you had roy clark and um buck owens both as straight on country stars yeah, yeah. but you didn't have a female representative in that way and that's yeah. what that's the really thing that about you Jeannie, is that you represented women and there were not a ton of country women stars when you were starting out right to look up to and and say that this is what i want to be would you agree right there were very few before me and that's why i think i had a lot of influence on the pop singers from the 50s remember there was a show called the hit parade in the 50s where we saw patty page and um i can't even think teresa brewer i remember love teresa brewer and a lot of the um pop singers is what i I tried to emulate them and their their presence on stage and and because that's really like you say all I had to to look up to to learn from. Yeah. Hey, I, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in the music industry. Things just aren't done the same way they were done before. Uh, how about some insights about the direction that you see the industry going uh, and maybe the future? Well, you know, who knows? I, I never even dreamed of a time we would have the technology to be doing what we're doing now. I mean, and who knows that technology is changing so fast. I mean, something two years ago was out of date now. And of course, with the pandemic, who knew we could change so fast to what we're doing also so i really have no idea i'm very technically challenged <laughs> if anything if it goes exactly like planned i'm i can do it but if not i'm hollering at bev real quick <laughs> well, i don't know you got a golden microphone there that's oh, pretty impressive yeah, well, that's what i'm used to you know <laughs> but a lot of um you know like when people will ask me how to for a young artist and I just have to be honest and say I would have no idea how to start today the yeah, only totally thing different. I can say that's always consistent is sing wherever you can talk wherever you can so you hopefully somebody's listening yeah. and will pay attention that that's, hasn't changed absolutely and I think it also has music live on the new technology allows people to enjoy your music that maybe at times when it was a certain fad and everyone gave up in a certain style of music say okay that's old we're not only oldies now everyone younger are getting to listen to your music how does that feel oh i think it's wonderful when i hear some of the people say well i you know i don't like any of this stuff today and you can't hear what what uh, what i really like well I disagree because again, with age of technology, we are so fortunate. We can find and hear and see anything we want any time yeah. of the day or night. So I think things are better than they used to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, your writing. You're still writing. Yeah. Yes, I am. So uh, are you writing for other artists as well? 
Well, I don't usually write for somebody. I just have an idea or a feeling and I write it and where mm. it lands, that's, you know, who knows. But uh, the most recent thing was a song that uh, I wrote with Bobby Tomberlin and Aaron Enderlin, a song called Like I Could that Rhonda uh, Vincent, I just was telling her that I had never done a writing appointment uh, in all the years that I had written. <laughs> and then this was my first one. And I was real happy about the song. She said, well, can I hear it? And so I wasn't even <laughs> pitching the song. I was just telling her the story and saying she loved it. So she took it all the way to number one in the bluegrass. Wow. That's Very the way to go. That. Yeah. And I got several of them started. And of course, about the time I got brave enough to do a <laughs> writing appointment, everything closed down. So <laughs> we can't get together. So I don't know. Well, I haven't there's, tried there's still the, Zoom. Yeah, I haven't tried the Zoom writing yet, but Steve Warner's doing it. So if Steve can do it, I can do it. That's right. <laughs> now to talk a little bit about writing what how, how do you get your creative juices going to write songs well it's usually if i get an idea that i know is good it's different it's fresh um then i get excited about it to just i still haven't done the appointment where you just go in and say okay what are we going to write about today <laughs> i still haven't done one of those but I'm keeping notes all the time because there again, I'm told that it's okay to go to a writing session without some idea that's just burning in your heart and brain. Yeah. That sometimes when you get in that network that it, that it inspires you to come out with something. So I'm looking forward to the first time for that. So I'm sure you've done a lot of tours in your career. Uh, do they take a lot out of you? And are, are you still doing tours? I don't think so, right? Um, well, I was um, not really tours, but um, anymore, I like to run out and do a couple of shows and come home. <laughs> so, um, but I was out there on the road for a long time, and um, I loved that life. I really did. I loved that lifestyle and had a lot of fun and made a lot of wonderful friends. But um, as time went on and goes on, it gets a little bit more difficult to do. And, and here again today with the conditions in the world today, there's just way more going on than I feel like I need to deal with that much. If Man. there's something really fun, it's like I tell people all the time when they'll ask me about doing something, I'll say, whoa, wait a minute, you got to realize I'm not building a career here. I'm just trying to enjoy what's left <laughs> of this one. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, there's certain of the acts that I love to, to work with. And uh, I was thrilled to be able to go to Branson and work with Rhonda Vincent on her show oh. up there during the Christmas season. I always love to go uh, do some shows with Gene Watson, his band. I just love uh -huh. his band. And and uh, Mo Bandy is another favorite of mine. Because of the, we're so kind of different, 
yeah. and we're all close friends. But uh -huh. those packages work very well. And of course, my dear friend Bill Anderson, I'll be with him wherever and whenever I can. You know Willie Nelson? Oh, very you well. You with him? You're, are you on yes, his network well, or something? Tell me he's, about that. Um, he did a duet with me on this oh. latest project. And since you're in LA, I will tell you this. When I first met Willie, uh, was when he was recording an album for Liberty Records called And Then I Wrote. And he didn't remember meeting me then because <laughs> I was just there at the studio helping. I always volunteered to work at the studios, do whatever they needed to do so that I could learn. And, uh, but then he remembered me more out shortly after that when one of my jobs at Imperial Record was to rent some offices. So I rented an office to Willie Nelson. Oh. And uh, so we met in 63, 64 yeah. in what LA. Your, what is your favorite fondest memory working with Willie? Um, oh my goodness, there's so many. I was blessed to be able to open for Willie on his fair dates in uh, 81 mm. and 82. Those were just exciting summers. And uh, uh, just being around Willie and that calm that he's always got. It's just <laughs> always about joy and a good time. There's, a, you know, don't don't bring problems to Willie Nelson's camp. He doesn't want to hear them, you know. But uh, we just had a great time, and um, I was trying to think. Uh, I can't really remember right now the last time he and I really actually worked together. But we talk on the phone. I love. Of course, Willie. I'm a part of Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM, which is a total joy to be a part of that. Willie family. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about more about how like being on Sirius and how cool that is, especially to keep this going and be able to be part of country music in that way. Being on Willie's Well, I was so thrilled when they called me and asked me if I would be interested in doing an air personality shift because I hadn't really thought about it. And actually the the way I more or less auditioned is kind of interesting because we do a fundraiser here for music health alliance which you know helps the entertainers negotiate insurance and everything like that that we don't really understand most of the time but anyway they called me to be a part of a roast for charlie monk and so I was delighted, Charlie, and I've been friends for years. And of course, he can really take all the jabbing. So it was just <laughs> delightful. Well, then uh, when I went in, certain circumstances going on, Charlie, just without realizing he was handing me all the ammunition I needed that <laughs> night to fire back at him. So it went really well and found out later that the top, uh, people with Sirius XM were there that night. I hadn't met any of them, didn't know. And so they, that's where I really auditioned. They said, well, if she's that quick on her feet <laughs> on that, then we need her on the air. So I am thrilled, came up with the idea of Sundays with Seeley, and it just kind of uh, caught on. And 
Uh, what I try to do on my show, and here again, this came from a fan. This lady said, I love your show. She said, I love all the guys, but they tell me a lot of stuff that I can Google and find out for myself. And she said about the music, I like hearing what you talk about, how you decorate your house and how you decorate for the holidays and fun little stories and things people have said to you and that kind of thing. So that's kind of uh, what I focus on mostly is just, um, more on a personal side. And I came up with another idea to do a phone call to some of my friends and they like to keep them short, five, six minutes. So everybody will give me at least that much time usually. And uh, so that's kind of the emphasis there is to find out what's going on in people's life. Wow. Fun stuff. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. If it's not fun, I pretty much don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look great. And uh, well, apparently you still have a lot of energy to, to keep doing what you're doing. God bless you. You have Thank a long you. life. I have been very, very fortunate. Health I think it goes back there again, growing up so far out in the country in rural Pennsylvania. I never learned, we of course didn't have fast food you know, <laughs> places and I never, uh, never acquired a taste for fast food. Um, I, I eat pretty healthy and I've, I've been always been grateful for that. So let's talk about how you felt when you won your Grammy. How did that feel? Oh my goodness. First of all, you know, that was only the third Grammy Award for a woman and only the fourth in really? country music, oh, really? really. Wow. So it was so uh, new. A lot of us really didn't even know. I say us, including me. I was so new to the business. I was still learning what a lot of things were. So yeah. I have to say that it wasn't until later on that I could truly appreciate what the Grammy Award that I was given meant. And to know that it's, that it's, um, that is chosen by your peers. You know, that means so much more. There's yeah. no, um, politics. You know, no, yeah, no politics, no hype to it. And uh, <laughs> also that, um, that it is not just the song, it is your performance. So that when I fully realized what that stood for, it means more all the time to me. I think my two prized possessions are my Grammy Award and my Opry statue. Absolutely, I was about uh, to ask about that. So it felt <laughs> so good, the Opry statue. Does that mean more than your Grammy? Because again, in country music, that the Grand Ole Opry is like. Oh, yeah. that's like asking me to choose between. People always say between their kids. I didn't have kids. That's <laughs> like asking me to choose between my pets. They they are both just so much a part of my life. They really are. A fun note on the Grammy. I mean, on the Opry statue. For the people who might have watched the show Nashville, every time Raina yes. James or any of them got a, a Grammy, I mean, a, darn, a, a, an Opry 
induction on that show, it was my statue they saw <laughs> because wow, really? I live so close, you know, of course, those are made up uh, at just they're not made up ahead of time. They're made for somebody. So I remember Pete Fisher, the manager, called me and he said, um, do you could we borrow your Opry statue, you know, <laughs> um, for a scene and I'm like no I can't let you do that Mr. Fisher and he's like we will take really good care of I'll come and get it personally and I'll bring it back and I said sure but there's a rental fee for it I can't just <laughs> loan that out so it, so, it uh, was a lot of fun so you're in great company the third woman to ever get an opera who are the other two just out of curiosity well the in country music the first the first year they did uh, just a country record and bobby bear won that in 1963 for uh, detroit city and then the next year in 64 they gave a male and a female and my friend dotty west won female for here comes my baby and 65 Jody Miller won it for Queen of the House, her answer to Roger Miller's King of the Road. <laughs> and then I won it in 66. Here in good company. Yes, yeah. I've been very blessed. I'm, uh, I think that I have, I love the, the era that, that I've been allowed to yeah, live in. It's just been a very special thing to, to get to know these heroes and call them friends. Were you able to work with Mar Marty Robbins? I'm yes. In fact, there's a video shows up every now and then on YouTube where uh, Dottie West and I were on uh, with Marty uh -huh. together. And uh, that was kind of fun. Yes. And of course, uh, at the Opry with Marty. And also I got to ride in the pace car <laughs> um, for something out at the Nashville Speedway when he was racing too. No, it's also interesting, Jeannie, you took some time off and then went back in the 90s. What made you, the love of music, come back, right? The 90s where you made the your, your, your next run. What made yeah, I think a lot of that had to do with, I was living out in the country and um, all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't participating in so many things uh, industry wise. And you have to network in this business. I thought, well, I guess any business networking is very important, but I realized that I just wasn't involved in everything because I didn't like that long drive out into the country by myself late at night, which, and things were changing. It wasn't as safe to do as it was the years before. And so I'd stopped doing that. So anyway, that's when I ended up leaving the farm and moving into this little cottage on the Cumberland and getting back involved with everything. And of course, when I bought this little cottage, we had Opryland Park a gaslight theater, TNN studios, the riverboat taxis, the General Jackson showboat. I was um, right in the middle of yeah. all of it and did everything there was to do. I miss all that. Are they not around anymore or just because of COVID? Well, they no, they closed the park. 
and which was a devastating thing to all of us in the industry and to our town, really. How about they, the water it taxi? Was a, it was a terrible mistake, I think, because um, we literally sent our kids back to the street and we took away a lot of uh, first time jobs, not only in the music people like Dean Dillon, you know, singing in shows out there in the park and developing their talents, but also the other kids that got work experience in all the little shops and and the rides and those kind of things. So it was very rough to do that. We still have the General Jackson showboat and uh, that's always a delight when people come. I like to make sure they know about that and enjoy that. Is the park still there? Or they built something on it. They built a shopping mall. Of course. Oh. <laughs> they did the same thing in, in Honolulu. It's terrible. Yeah. I haven't oh. been there in a long time. <laughs> so before we get to Dave's question, latest project, would you say, is the Roadhouse? What else do you want to pr promote right now? Well, of course, I'm still promoting my album that we released this past August because um, and we probably will work on that longer than maybe normal. But with the pandemic and the shutdown, we were we were limited on how we could promote an album. And that was that's the first time when you think about it. I've been on a major label since the 70s. So I've been recording all this time, but not on a major label. So I'm very proud to to be sharing Curb. And Mike Curb has been a wonderful man for our industry. And I was so glad he was interested in my project. So we are still working on that. We're going to start pushing a second single. The first one was the duet with Willie Nelson called There's Not a Dry Eye in the House. And uh, I love the, what someone described, actually Dallas Wayne, the songwriter on that said, I love the interpretation you did because he said, it sounds like a conversation between two old friends. <laughs> and of course, that's, that's what that's Willie and I are. That, so that, I think, yeah. I'm sorry. I said, that's the most important thing, that chemistry, that makes a yes. great song. Yeah. I think so, and I think it, look that, up. that feeling comes across to the listener, I think, too. So we're probably going to focus a push maybe on a up-tempo swing song that I recorded that I think right now the title is pretty, pretty fitting. It says, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so Dave's um, last question, final question, Jeannie, is evolving caregiving. I call them caregiver Dave Nassani because he's a caregiver. And he does great, uh, great message all over the world about caregiving. So Dave, go ahead and ask the question, Jeannie. You know, Jeannie, my wife uh, had a headache about 21 years ago. She was only 52 and it turned into a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down and it was at that time after a couple of year grieving period where we almost broke up, you know, she was angry and bitter most of the time because she couldn't talk. She still can't talk, but she can communicate non-verbally, you know, through Pictionary charades, a couple of games I'm still getting used to because I suck at, and she's in a power wheelchair. So we've, we managed to travel all over the world now because she's got a great attitude and people look up to her and they're inspired by her. 
because she does more than most normal people can. And I like to say, uh, since 30% of caregivers actually die because of their uh, stress in their life uh, before their loved ones do, um, anyone can become a caregiver just like that. They're either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver. And uh, so I start this website, caregiverdave.com, to help out. I travel the country, been on TV, spoke at Harvard and NASDAQ and uh, Carnegie Hall. And my question to you is, uh, how has caregiving touched your life? Well, like you said, you can become a caregiver in an instant. And three years ago, that happened with me, with my husband. Uh, we had gone to the opening of Ray Stevens' new cabaret. Everything was going fine. Two days later, he was in so much pain. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Took him to ER and and they had to do emergency surgery. And you've seen some of the lawsuits about the mesh that's given people problems. Right. And that's what happened to him. Mm. So he had emergency surgery, spent 33 days in intensive oh care, five months in rehab. So he could learn to, when he went to rehab, he could not sit up. He couldn't turn over nothing by himself. And today he works on those, walks on those elbow crutches, oh. but, and has a brace on his foot, but he is, he is amazing. And like you said about your wife, you know, that spirit, that spirit never changes yeah. regardless of the physical things. And I can understand what you're saying about your wife too, because my husband dealt with that, with his former wife, she had a stroke and could not speak. And mm -hmm. he was about the only one who could understand her. So um, yes, caregiver is a, is a tough job, but it's a very rewarding job to know that you can make such a difference in someone's life sure. by little things. Now that doesn't mean we don't sputter quite a bit. <laughs> because we do because somehow i don't ever do things the way he does i think sure. our major thing dave is how difficult it is for me to steer while he drives from the other <laughs> side Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real life crime stories such as Waco. For more information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com.